Today's reading is James 1, 17 through 27. It can be found on page 1800 or 118 on the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chooses to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror and after looking at themselves go away and immediately forget what they look like. But those who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who do consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The word of the Lord. All right. I'm going to stand in front of this microphone because we, uh, we, we have a glitch on a very expensive part of the recording system. So um, I'm going to figure out how to get that glitch fixed and then uh, hopefully be up and running with so I can walk around and be more animated next week. Let's pray before we look at this. Our God of grace, as we come to you this morning, we come from different places in our, in our lives, um, different experiences, and the truth is we walk in here carrying a lot. Um, there's people carrying um, sadness, um, grief. There's people carrying anger and resentment, and there's people carrying gratitude, and there's people carrying joy or thankfulness for um, recent doors that have opened or things that have changed. Others of us uh, maybe just walk in carrying um, a sense of guilt, maybe even shame or embarrassment. And all of that comes from just the real-life stuff of living in a broken world. And we are broken. We're more of a mess than we want other people to know. This morning is an exercise of putting our lives before a story that offers mercy and grace to wayward and broken failures. Because your gospel, the message of Jesus, the message of your scripture says over and over again, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Even though that love has to meet us and traverse the giant gap in the sinkhole of our failed efforts, our lacking devotion, our lack of attention to you. But it does. And it makes its way to us, giving us what we don't deserve. Speak to us now through that grace. Bring healing. 
bring relief from the burdens we carry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most entertaining aspects of the show Seinfeld is the character George Costanza and his, um, his way of getting himself into these situations because he wants to be something that he's not. Or he wants to get something by saying he's something that he's not. Um, I didn't go through my Seinfeld Rolodex or Wikipedia or anything like that to discover. There's probably a hundred examples I could give. I'm probably missing a bunch of really fun ones. And I do have all the DVDs of, I think, every season but one on my shelf. But I thought of a few. So, you know, so, so uh, George Costanza at one point, um, and I think this thread comes through a lot. He he's, insists on he's an architect. <laughs> it's kind of his dream occupation. Oh, I'm an architect. Another uh, early episode, he links himself to a fictional company called Vandalay Industries, which uh, when asked what, what kind of role he has is it's importing and exporting. Um, he's an importer-exporter. And, uh, and, and so that's all, of course, phony. And then one of my favorite, one of the just the most delightful, entertaining episodes, I think, ever is when he claims to be a marine biologist, which, of course, ends up with him walking. You know, the girl that he's trying to impress with this title of marine biologist, they're walking along the beach together when a whale needs to be rescued. <laughs> and I think the way it goes, again, I didn't look it up all the way, but I believe that somebody actually shouts out loud, is anybody here a marine biologist? <laughs> you know, 10 feet away from George Costanza. And of course, his, his, his woman looks lovingly into his eyes and she says, save the whale, George, save it for me, or something like that. And, and so he makes his way out to the whale and, uh, and then the, the episode ends with a wonderful speech by uh, Jason Alexander as George Costanza um, about how he saved the whale by um, reaching down into the blowhole and pulling out a golf ball. Um, and I forget how all the rest went, but... That's George Costanza. He's always, he's, you know, and I had a friend who in the height of the Seinfeld era, when, you know, these, these shows were, you know, they were, it was like the most famous show ever, and it was probably like seven, eight, nine seasons in, and everybody seemed to be watching it. And I had this friend who said he couldn't watch the show because of George Costanza. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of you resonating. It was like there was something that connected that sort of disingenuousness to his own, and this friend of mine would say, I just can't, I can't, it reminds me too much of myself in some way, like getting into those situations, those awkward situations, and like the fear of getting exposed maybe, right? And, and, and the more I think about it, the more I think there's something in all of us that sometimes raises its ugly head once in a while and says, yes, are you a phony? Are you an imposter? Um, is there something misaligned between the real you and, and then what you actually end up doing? Or what you say you are versus what you do? This fear of exposure, being called a sham or being shown to be inauthentic. I think it's pretty common. Sometimes people will just voice it to me in a one-on-one -on -one meeting as just, I feel like an imposter. That's, that's about all the words they can put to it in one way or another. And I wonder if you resonate in some way today with that. We're collectively, worldwide, amazed at these three sacramentans who, in the moment of proving themselves on a train going from, I think, Belgium, Belgium to France or to Paris, France, um, showed themselves to, you know, to be true to their training, these three 
guys, I think all three of them had military training and they hop up when they see this, this person, this would-be mass murderer, and they end it before it even starts. And they're, they're proved to be the kind of people that they are. And the story comes out in the news as not a, another terrible example of the kinds of things we're just used to hearing. But I think we're so in awe and excited about, thankfully, somebody stopped this one from happening. And we're holding these people up as, as just heroes. And, and we say, yeah, they really are. And maybe some of you wonder if life for you is a little bit like, is it going to be like that? Are, are the, and in fact, daily, on a daily basis, we have these opportunities to either prove ourselves to be who we maybe say we are or what we've been trained or what, you know, maybe certain things we've said we want to be. And do we prove them? Or do we end up like George Costanza? I mean, these three guys risked their lives to save other people's lives. And if I remember correctly, there was even a scene in Seinfeld at one point where George Costanza literally pushes away the women and children to get out of a sticky situation. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, is that you? It, you know, you, whatever it takes to just get yourself out of the dangerous situation, or, or are you going to prove yourself? And the, gossip, or the, the writer, James, who um, seems by all accounts to be the James who is Jesus' brother, He's writing this letter and he's fixated on, he's, he's focused on, he wants to emphasize authenticity of faith. It's what the whole letter of James really circles around, and so we're going to look at it for a couple of weeks. What is authentic faith? What is it? What does it look like? How do you know you have it? And I want to start that because th- this is tricky waters. This is like a tightrope that James is watching, walk, walking, and so we're going to enter into this tightrope with him. And so I'm going to do what will feel like a, maybe a giant aside to you, but it's extraordinarily important to make sure that we're hearing it correctly and understanding the whole book of James within the context of gospel community and we don't get tripped up in a different direction. So I actually have a diagram. And we're going to start by saying, how is what James doing... Uh, something that fits within the gospel community. There's two ways to uh, say, talk about authenticating your faith. There's two ways. You know, James says in this, in this, um, in this reading, this really amazing, just very simple analogy. Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror and after looking at themselves, go away, immediately forget what they look like. It's about authenticity. It's about sticking to what you said. You hear the word, you do it. Okay, so when we're in that terrain of like whether you do what you say you are or what you say you're going to do, this is what is what I would call the religious way of authentication. And this is what the gospel community of the first century that James is writing to, that he's familiar with, that Jesus has begun, this is what it kind of pushes aside and says this is inferior and this is how it goes. There is a high standard... God's standard. You know, the Bible is full of commands and principles and things that are, that are put in imperative form. You know, do this, don't do that. So there's this high standard. There seems to be this really high standard. So the way to authenticate yourself is to look at that high standard and then look at your life and say, I either succeed or I fail. Pretty simple, right? I either succeed or I fail. And so then you move on to being either self-assured or you move on to being living in fear of judgment. 
and maybe returning back to that high standard and I guess trying harder, right? Looking more intently at the high standard and trying and trying and trying and maybe eventually you'll be able to have some self-assurance. So I'd call this the religious method of authentication. You've, if you spend a lot of time in churches or maybe have bounced around to different churches, you've heard it very clearly from preachers even and from Bible studies. You hear, look, this is what it's all about. Isn't it so obvious? And usually there, there has to be because the Bible is so full of like a, a full orbed huge set of like what the world was made to be. So like there's principles and, and standards that touch on everything it seems like in the Bible. So usually what we tend to do is we tend to grab hold of certain ones and then we elevate those a little bit and we say now these are the really important ones. And then we judge ourselves on those standards and you get sermons that, that say or you get teachings that say, um, you know, as one person told me, they went to a sermon, it was all about, are you the best of the best? <laughs> and, you know, God only accepts the best of the best. <laughs> and so this was, you know, so there were certain a few things like cursing and a few other things that were attached to this. And, and okay, so you get the point, And if you've been there, you understand it and you kind of catch what it's all about. And you can spend, actually, this is the tricky thing about this. You can spend 30 years at City Life Church or some other place that talks about the other way I'm about to describe, you know, this gospel approach, this Christian approach, this way that kind of Jesus came and blew this out of the water. And you could be listening to it for 30 years and still functionally, just in your day-to-day, just in your heart. And when it really comes down to some of the real issues at play in your life, you're actually still functioning in this terrain. You're still in some way pulled on and tugged by, or there's some voices in your life that keep making you doubt and live in fear of judgment. It's really, really, well, I would say you just, you eventually need only the Holy Spirit. That's how the Bible would talk about it. Only the Holy Spirit can bump you out of this and to, to actually begin to functionally live another way, even though you know the way of grace, even though you know the way of the gospel. And so what's going to happen if you are still kind of functionally in this method of being authenticated, you become racked with fear or guilt or shame. Or So that's one approach. You can feel really terrible about yourself or the other approach is kind of fun because you can say, well, I, I'm actually doing pretty good. And uh, you start to feel kind of condescending towards other people, right? And so maybe you've been in that place in one part of your life or maybe you've been the recipient of other people feeling that way and looking down their nose at you. But that's another way uh, that this kind of spits people out. You either feel condescending or you live in fear and shame and um, wrecked with guilt. And whether you are... This is the hard thing, whether you're religious, whether you're doing this in a religious way or surprise, surprise, you can do this in an irreligious way. You can say, I'm done with God in church, but guess what? There's some super duper high standard that you hold to and that you think everybody else needs to hold to. And then you kind of condescend and, you know, you get the same pattern. Either way, it's, a, it's an exhausting treadmill. And you know how treadmills work, right? They never arrive. You never actually get there. You never get anywhere fruitful. And I would describe the things, the little tricks we do when we're still functionally in this system. Um, the little tricks we do, I would summarize as you either bend or you defend or you end or, or upend. Bend, defend, or upend. You bend something of the high standard. You say somewhere in here God was wrong or scripture was wrong or those church people were wrong. And so you bend it and you say, oh, now I can see myself. Now that I've bent that a little bit, I can see myself as succeeding. Or... 
Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you spend just a lot of time defending. Maybe you just kind of like you get this protective wall of defensiveness in your life and you keep those voices out and you say, that's how I'm going to say I'm okay and I'm self-assured in my behavior. Or you just upend the whole thing and you say, adios. <laughs> that is not growth. That is unhealthy. And man, I could, I could, the dozens and dozens of people I have talked to who have just said, that seems to be what religious church people do. I'm out of here. We need the gospel. Um, so let's look at this, and I hope, I hope you'll think of some, and we're going to get to one specific area that James talks about, but can, I hope you'll consider some area in your life where you see some of this at work, and you need the gospel approach rather than the, um, rather than the religious approach. So let's look at the next slide. This is gospel authentication, and gospel authentication, yes, there's a really high standard that it starts with. I could have made this diagram to have that at the top as well, but this I don't want you to miss this really huge, huge, important starting point. We are universally George Costanzas. We are universally duplicitous. We universally fail at meeting the standard that we wish or that we say we want to hold up to. And so this is where it gets interesting. This is where it just kind of blows you away and offers a whole new path to life. There is universal duplicitousness, but there is God's substitutionary authentication. God's substitutionary authentication comes into play. Um, so what that does is it can create, if, if that actually, if you believe in that, that, that Jesus kind of is the son of God and comes in and substitutionally authenticates you, you can stop running on the treadmill. There's something about um, the fear of judgment that immediately you have a door open to not live in that kind of fear of judgment, but you also aren't condescending because you didn't self-authenticate. It doesn't come down to you. One of the things that I see all the time in myself and in other people is this immediate walls that come up when a fault is shown by someone else or is confronted by somebody. We get this, right? Somebody says, now, what I'm seeing here is, and you're like, whoa, 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 stop being so judgmental, and I, but I did this, and, but you don't understand the context, and da 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 We have all these ways of protecting ourselves, but actually the gospel, if it starts with universally duplicitous and then God um, giving a substitute authentication, then why the defensiveness? It becomes natural to say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I make all kinds of mistakes. Yes, I'm, I'm imperfect, and I, I need that to be shown to me. But my hopes and my dreams aren't actually riding on myself pulling it all together and, and getting things right. So there's a sort of humility that's allowed. There's sort of a... So all, I just want to say, this is, all of this is going on as James is writing this letter. He's writing to people who have been, their lives have been exploded and turned around and transformed because of this new thing. Everybody's just used to that religious way, right? Like, you've either got this kind of standard of religion or this kind of standard, but it all works the same. You either measure up or you don't. And the gospel comes in and says it works totally different. Universally duplicitous, substitute authentication. And then, here, now here's James, though. Because James is coming in, and this letter comes a little later in the game than the first sort of explosion of this new gospel Christianity, and he starts walking this tightrope. Because he's not satisfied ending it right there, because if you end it right there, another, so on the one hand, if you're in the religious mode, you might bend, defend, or upend, but if you're in gospel mode, you might do this other thing. You might have grace-based complacency. 
And so that's what James is hearing from. That's what James is hearing about. That's what he's pastoring towards in communities. And so he's trying to walk a tightrope of saying, there's still some way of looking at your life in looking, in doing a sort of authenticating practice, and yet it's different now. It's like it's got a gospel twist to it. So how does that work? And he's so filled with the gospel, he's not afraid to kind of throw it out there. I'm so aware of our draw back to the religious mode and how I think a lot of us have experienced American churchianity as that religious mode that it's so hard for us to hear the, gospel, the, the book of James in this grace-based light. And so, so this is how he does it. There's another slide. This is what he does. He takes it another step further. He's not saying like, well, you need grace plus actions, and that's the only way to validate. No, he's saying the way you can examine and look at your life is to look, in, look for signs of grace being reenacted and illustrated. He actually gives three. So, so the love of God, the grace of God gets illustrated and reenacted, and he gives three strong examples. Thankfully, he gives concrete examples. Maybe you noticed, I thought this was kind of funny, because he gives some really concrete examples, and they are anger and speech and compassion. And then he gives the, the most not concrete example in the world at the end. He says, um, just to make it seem all totally overwhelming, he says, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. <laughs> it's like, here's some specific plays you can work on. And by the way, don't be polluted at all by the world. Um, I just thought that was kind of funny. Like, uh, So I'm going to I'm going to kind of keep that one aside, and we're going to look at the more specific ones. But what he's doing is saying, okay, there are places you can look and see. Is there evidence that the grace, the gospel, is being illustrated in your life and reenacted? And guess what? If you find it, great. What do you do? You return back to that gospel authentication. You just return back, and it's like a cycle. You see it, you give thanks that God's at work in your life, and you keep going back to that same well of living water of grace that, that satisfies your thirst. If you find it's not at work, what do you do? Beat yourself up, live in fear, live in guilt, live in shame? Compare yourself to others? No. Just say, aha, I discovered another place where the gospel needs to be at work more. Go back to the gospel. Go back to God's authenticating of your entire existence through the cross of Jesus. It just, you just keep going back over and over again. So you see, if you're, if you're a Christian who's been on this journey for decades, or if you're someone who just walked in the door, or you're considering being a Christian, or you just became one, or you just got baptized, everybody's in the same boat. We're all just a part of the same cycle of experiencing more of the gospel, seeing it bear more fruit and illustrations in our life. Does that make sense? And James's, you know, James's context makes him, he's, you know, he's starting to see the kind of grace-based complacency, where it's like, hey, you know, Saved by grace, you know, God did all the work, and, and, you know, I'm good, we're all good, you know, we're all fine, so, and then, so nothing, you know, so sort of just like, be who you want to be, and just kind of move, see, see, it creeps in pretty quick, oh, we're saved by grace, we don't worry about, like, whether, you know, we blow up in anger at each other, or we, our speech is terrible, or we have no compassion, just, you know, we're all saved, who cares, we're all saved by grace, and so he goes into these examples, let me just quickly do one, I can't, I, you know, I imagined this sermon, as like a three-point thing where we talk about anger, then we talk about speech, then we talk about compassion. I had to lay the grid, so we did that, and now I just briefly talk about anger. Anger's the, the funnest one, if you look at it. Anger's fun. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Anger. 
Think about the last time you were really angry. It's really fun to be angry, isn't it? That's part of what, I mean, there's something, I don't know if you'd say fun, but, and then later on it gets not fun if you hang on to it long, but there's something just visceral, like, it feeds itself, right? The anger sort of just pulls in all this justification and all this defense, and it just kind of like spirals and swirls, and it gets going. Um, and it's easy to fuel, it seems, anger. So in a sense, you know, it would be fun to know, what, what, what does James know about and all these Christians that he's writing? What kind of instance? Wouldn't it be nice to know an instance, a specific, an illustration? No, we know. We know why he touches on anger, because we experience it. And if you scratch underneath the surface, there's always, there's always a who, right? Oh, that person. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. They did that? Mm-hmm. That person. Boy, oh, boy. Yep, another story about them. And they did what? Oh, my goodness. I can't believe they did that. Right? How many of you am I describing something in your life right now, right? I mean, that's... So anger comes around like that, and, it's, and usually we have an example, usually not too far in the... And we, it flares up, and what do we do? If you explore it... We feel unjust. We feel like the scales have been imbalanced. Something that we deserved or expected or that we expected or deserved for someone else um, has not come through, and so now we're upset. It shouldn't, world shouldn't work this way. What do we do? Well, there's a number of things we can do. We usually say um, something like, so let's say someone comes into your life and they're not who they say they are or they're just sneaky in their way of getting their way at your expense. What do you do? What do you do when someone does that to you? Anger. What do you do? Anger comes up. And I think we start to say things like, let's make them pay. They're going to pay. They're going to pay. Or we say um, all kinds of things we say. I'll never, I'll never forgive. I'll never forgive. I will never forget. We go down this way. That, you know what? I'm gonna, they're going to feel it. I've got to find a way. To, and we make up little speeches where we're going to get them right in front of the other people. Anger. It's going. It's going. I'm going to take, you know, take them to court. I'm going to take them to court. So, that, you know, I'll never forgive. They're going down. Take them to court. These are all the things we do. This is naturally what we do. And guess what? If you're someone who, if you're a Christian and the gospel has connected and gotten into your life, You'll go there. You'll do that. I do. I, I, those are all things. I can speak about those things because those are all things that go through my head when I get into one of those places. And, and what happens with the gospel? If the gospel is at work in your life, if you're connecting with the gospel through scripture, through community, through prayer, and the Holy Spirit is at work making the gospel come alive in your life, and what happens? It's Im- absolutely impossible to keep nursing all of those impulses. See, anger becomes a place to illustrate and reenact the gospel. You can't keep nursing it because the gospel says you are more duplicitous and manipulative towards God than that person is towards you right now. Your whole relationship with God is based on his anger suspension. And so... What does God do with the, us, the, his duplicitous creatures who are given everything? Everything we have comes from him, and we, you know, basically, we should be constantly lifting our hands in praise to God, and in a sense, you could describe our spiritual life as constantly raising the middle finger at God. And what does he do? 
He refuses, this is the Bible story over and over again, he refuses to say, I'll make them pay. He refuses to make us go down. He refuses to say, I'll never forgive, I'll never forget. He refuses to take us to court. He refuses to say, I'm going to make you feel it. Refuses. And, and the, the verse that's really powerful with this is Romans 5, chapter 8, where, where, where it said, um, and God's love is demonstrated in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's just a reflection, of course, on the God of the Bible and the God of the Old Testament, who when he was given a short bio, many times in the Old Testament you'll find this little phrase where it says, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and it gives a few things. This is who he is. He is this. He is that. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And if that touches your life, if you start to see and resonate in some way that you are duplicitous, there is a God who made you, and you've, you know, you've given him the middle finger with your life. You continue to do so against your best, better judgment. And you, and you begin to really see yourself in that kind of relationship, and you see that that's his approach. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And he makes up all the difference and forgives and brings you in and sets aside legitimate anger. You suddenly are, your new life is suddenly created through an act of anger suspension. It's impossible now, if that is at work in your life, for it not to in some way touch your anger at other people. So I could tell you, like, oh, anger management means this, anger management means that. Um, at some point, you know, you, you know, there's the movies where, you know, I forget which, maybe it was actually the one called Anger Management, but there's these things like count to ten, right? Or have some mantra. Those things all work and they're good and use them if you're really angry. You should find something to do to help you. Buy yourself some time to apply the gospel is how I would say it. But there's all these tricks. One person talked to me once and said, I just get really, I want to figure this out. I'm getting really angry. I have these outbursts. I need to figure it out. And, and I thought off the top of my head, he's, well, he asked, he said, what's the opposite of anger? And I, and I said, aha, it's listening. Just listen. And I thought, well, that's a good tip. But I would actually add to that now as I think about it. And I would say, um, remember that you, make, that you could legitimately make God super-duper angry and he finds a way to not hold you to the fire. Um, that's your relationship with God. That is essential to your relationship with God. And that can, it can't help but start to touch and start to transform and start to change your response. So, do you see what's going on? There's, uh, the gospel illustrated, the gospel reenacted in your life. That's what James is looking for it sounds a lot like him shaking his finger at a bunch of religious people. And so for some reason throughout the history of the Christian church, people have said, get the book of James out of the Bible. <laughs> it is not gospel. And so I'm trying to give you the gospel context and say, no, let's listen to it and realize it's an incredibly fruitful practice in your life to look at some specific issue, whether it's speech whether it's compassion, whether it's anger, or some other issue you brought in this morning, and to say, in this issue, can I start to put words and images to how I am actually, I have a chance to reenact the act of grace that God has done on behalf of me, the thing that gives me joy, the thing that makes me want to come back to God, the thing that gives me new life. May God give us the grace to be able to do this in some small way in our lives. Let's pray. God of grace, we pray that you would help us to be a community of gospel reenactment. We need your help, though. We need your Holy Spirit as we sort out our universal duplicitousness. 
we say at City Life, in terms of our values, we say we want to be a community that that pursues eager apology and eager forgiveness. And yet that is so, it sounds so easy and it, it couldn't be further from easy. Would you help us? And with those who are struggling with some specific anger or some specific sort of legalistic authentication in their life this morning, would you help them not to just try harder, but would you help them to see you and see your grace more clearly? And to be wooed and won over by your love before they beat themselves up over what they're not accomplishing in their life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.